Well, you might like to uh, turn in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, page 985. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, as we continue looking in this series through uh, Matthew 18, uh, last week, this week and next week. Um, And uh, uh, two New Year's resolutions of mine that have continued. One uh, is to go running. Yes, I'm pounding the streets every day. And uh, here it is, the 14th of January. I've been out 13 days running. I don't think I'm going to make it today. It's just too busy. Uh, But I'll start again tomorrow. Uh, The other New Year's resolution that I've kept is uh, I've got you another handout. Some people find them helpful, some don't. But if it's helpful for you, there it is. Um, And we'll see if we can get to next week as well with a handout. Um, But you might like to follow Um, uh, It might help you to know where I'm going. I wonder how precious is your fellow believer? Uh, How precious is your fellow believer to you? Precious enough that you will go out of your way for them when they are struggling? Precious enough to seek to bring them back into fellowship even when they have wronged you and hurt you and sinned against you? A good friend of mine is a huge example and challenge to me in the way that he treats others. He is an exceptionally able and gifted Christian leader. But what most people don't see are his remarkable acts of love and generosity towards others. He goes to great lengths and often at considerable personal cost to help and support other Christians. His home is always open and he usually has someone needy staying in his spare room and often for quite some time. His acts of love and mercy are remarkable, but it was a few years ago when his flat was broken into that I saw the extent of his love towards others. The person who broke into his home and caused considerable damage was a member of the congregation. And I was astonished to see the lengths my friend went to to help that person to be restored in the Christian life. Now that is real kingdom living. Why does he live that way? Well, of course, because the gospel has grabbed his heart and completely transformed him. But what is the particular thing that makes him live quite like that? Well, I don't know. I've never asked him. But I've heard him pray often. And he prays often how every individual is precious as one for whom Christ died, is the phrase he uses. See, I will only have a fighting chance of treating others well when I grasp how precious every believer is to the Lord. Look at verse 10 in Matthew chapter 18 where we see that very point. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. One of these little ones as we uh, saw uh, last week. Little ones in Matthew's Gospel is language for believers. So uh, you can look it up later but in Matthew chapter 10 verse 42 Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he'll certainly not lose his reward. Little ones, language for being a disciple. And as we saw last week, there are are no insignificant believers. Do you remember how we looked at verse 5? Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That is how important every believer is. You welcome a Christian believer and you are welcoming Jesus no less. And just how precious every believer is, is underlined and developed here in verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now it's a difficult verse, as you can imagine, there's been much ink spilt over the meaning of this verse. Read the commentaries and you'll get as many different views as commentaries you read. 
Some say that this is teaching that all believers have a guardian angel. Others suggest that the idea of an a- the angels in heaven here is uh, the way that you describe the, the spirit of the dead Christian. There are so many different suggestions. I haven't finally been convinced by any of them. But you don't need to be certain of the detail to get the point. The point is that believers are so precious to God that they have personal access or representation before the king of the universe. In the very throne room of God, each individual matters to the Father. That is awesome, isn't it? Caroline and I have uh, just been uh, uh, watching over the last couple of nights um, the uh, Planet Earth DVD. Somebody very kindly gave us the whole box set uh, for Christmas and uh, we've thoroughly enjoyed seeing them. And how amazing is the planet that we live on? And when you begin to realise how awesome the the planet we live on is and then realise the God who made it and how big he must be, the creator God, to then think that every individual believer is precious to him in the very throne room of God is quite something, isn't it? Now, Christian, does that encourage you to know how precious you are to the Father? Well, good. But that's not actually the point. The verse here, here in verse 10, is not primarily to encourage me that I am precious to God. But it is to tell me that you, Christian, are precious to the Father. This verse is about your fellow believer. This verse should make me realise how important you are to the Father and so make me want to welcome you as if I were welcoming Jesus and to treat you with dignity and respect as a precious individual. And if ever you lose your way in the Christian life, this verse will encourage me to go out of my way and to go to great lengths to bring you back to the Lord because you are precious to him. And it should have the same effect on you for your fellow believers as well. And that is why Jesus goes on to tell this very well-known parable next. Verse 12. What do you think, he says, If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. See, again, these little ones, Jesus is still speaking here about believers. Uh, One of the things that is new to me as I've been studying this, it's fascinating that when Jesus uses the same parable in Luke chapter 15, he is telling us to search for unbelievers, to bring them to himself, to proclaim the gospel to prostitutes and tax collectors and rogue traders and those who've never been in the kingdom of God. But here in verses 12 to 14, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep out of concern for believers who have gone astray. Christians who've stumbled, Christians who've left the fellowship of the church, Christians who are disgruntled because of the way other Christians have treated them, Christians who've wandered away from Jesus. See, remember, every believer is precious to the Father. And so when a believer loses their way, we must go out of our way to restore them. That's the point of the parable of the lost sheep here. Just as a shepherd leaves the 99 safe sheep to go looking for the one that is lost, so we must look out for those who have lost their way, who were once followers of the Lord Jesus. Now you see, I think that is very important for us to hear, particularly here at Forward. The danger of being a large-ish church is that we don't miss people when they're not around. It is a terrible thing to say, 
But it is partly a practical issue and partly a sinful, and partly a sinful admission. See, practically in a gathering, uh, maybe not this big, but when we look at the 6.30 service and the 9.15 the and we add them all together, we sometimes just don't notice if someone hasn't been around. And that is why it is so crucial that everyone who considers themselves part of Christchurch Forward gets involved in a small group. That's the only way that we can really care for you. It's very difficult to do it otherwise. You know, join a small group where, where people will know if you're ill and they'll visit you in hospital and they'll bring you grapes. And they'll know if you're, if you're drifting away spiritually because they know you and they'll know that things aren't well with you. And they'll, they'll work hard with you and pray with you and read the Bible with you to bring you back. See, you see how important it is to join a group? We just can't look after everybody without that. Now look, it may be that you don't want to join. no way that we're going to force you to join a group. But it's, it's the only way we can really do spiritual pastoral care. It's necessary in a largest church. And if you say, yeah, I'd like to do that, that would be a good thing. We can find just the group for you. And uh, you might like to grab one of these uh, uh, leaflets, these well, uh, uh, information leaflets. You'll find them again at the end of the rows. Uh, fill it in, just tick small groups, hand it to me. I'll find just the group for you in discussion with you. You see, sometimes we just, we, we don't miss people when they're not around just because of the practicalities of being a largest church. And sometimes it's because we're sinful and selfish. See, if you're part of a small fellowship, when someone's not there, it's noticed instantly. And when you've only got 35 people in the congregation, if one or two are not there, uh, you feel it and you do something about it. And we should as well. We should feel it when there's one believer missing. And we will when we're convinced that every believer is precious. I come from a, a small family. Um, there have uh, been Christmas gatherings in the past when just my, my mum and dad and brother and me were there. That was it. The family gatherings are a bit larger now. Caroline and I have got children. My brother is married. Caroline has an aunt. She comes along as well. So there's more of us in the family now than there were. But just because there's more of us, it doesn't mean that we don't care as much about every individual. We would feel it deeply if mum or dad were not with us for Christmas. See, because the number of people we have in our family has increased, it doesn't mean that each one has become less precious. Of course not. Now, it's the same in the family of the church, or at least it should be. Every believer is precious to the Father, so if people fall away, we must go looking for them. If they are not around, we should feel it. Just as verse 12, if one sheep wanders off, a shepherd will go looking for it, even if he has 99 others. Now look, I would guess there are dozens of people who used to be involved here at Fullwood who've now dropped off. There must be people like that springing into your mind right now. Those of you who've been around for years. You can think of people who, who, who used to be stuck in but they're not anymore. Now Christian, will you write down their names on the handout if you've got a pen? If you haven't got a pen, then will you make a mental note of these people right now? And will you note also what this parable tells you that you must do for that person? See, this parable tells you that you must seek out that person, doesn't it? The person who's wandered off. 
If you haven't got time in your hectic schedule, don't come to as many church things. Uh, don't stop coming altogether. That would, that would uh, not be the point at all. But don't come to as many things. See, verse 12, leave the 99 behind and go and look for, spend time with and build up that one that was once involved in things but that you haven't seen around for a while, maybe for years. Call them, go around and have coffee with them, ask them if they still believe. Get to the real issue. Encourage them to be involved with a real and vibrant church fellowship. It doesn't have to be this one. We're not the only decent church in Sheffield. But get them to go somewhere. Because they are precious to the Father, spend time with them, study the Bible with them, pray with them, encourage them back into fellowship with God and his people. See, we cannot read this parable and continue to spend time in our small groups praying for those who've wandered away but never going out of our way for them. The shepherd in verse 12 does not stay with the 99 and call to the lost from the convenience of the sheep pen. I've been uh, toying with the idea, uh, really since I arrived, of having a church amnesty month. Maybe after Easter this year. Letting people in the parish know that they can come back to church, even if they haven't been for years, and they can come back with no questions asked. A church amnesty month. Yeah, it's a good idea. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and as I've studied this passage this week, I've thought, I wonder if this passage is saying that is the thing we should do. Well, if you think it is, then uh, I'd, I'd like to hear from you. Maybe you can say to me in the next uh, week or two if you think that would be a good thing. See, what joy it will bring us to see people return to the Lord, people who used to be following him but have lost their way. I was uh, struck uh, just yesterday in the news by uh, this uh, uh, news item of a Sean Hornbeck, the 15-year-old boy, who four years ago when he was 11 uh, was abducted. Um, His parents didn't even know that he was still alive for four years. They found him along with another boy who also had been snatched in the last couple of weeks. Did you hear the story? It's amazing reading about uh, 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 them being reunited, him being reunited with his his parents. They were lost for words, completely overjoyed. Their boy is back. I guess they were more joyful uh, on Friday because he had been away for four years, then they would have been on Friday if he'd always been around, wouldn't they? That's verses 13 and 14. If he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. See, that's how our Heavenly Father is. When straying believers come back to him, he is overjoyed and we should be too because... Every believer is precious to the Father. So we must go looking for those who wander off, bring them back into the kingdom. Take action to restore believers. Second, take action to restore relationships, verses 15 to 20. Look, you don't have to have been around in the Christian life for long to know of people who've stumbled in the Christian life, people who've lost their way. Of course, it happens for all sorts of reasons, but often, very often, it's because Christians have not welcomed them or because they've had a dispute with another Christian. Have you noticed that? People have fallen out with another Christian, they've not come to church, and then they've not come to church, and they've, not stopped, they've stopped reading their Bible, and 
They've just drifted away. So here, Jesus is saying, if you fall out of fellowship, be reconciled quickly. Christian, if you've been sinned against, even if you're the one who's in the right, even if you've been sinned against, sort out your difference with your brother or sister so that it doesn't end in you or them drifting away because everyone is so precious to the Lord, you see. Be reconciled to them and be reconciled to the Lord. What should we do then if that's the case? Well, go and see them, just the two of you, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Look at the detail. If he sins against you, the word for sin here appears only three times in Matthew's Gospel, here in verse 15, uh, we'll see it next week in verse 21, and lastly in chapter 27 verse 4, where Judas Iscariot, just before hanging himself, says, I have sinned, there's the word, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. See, to betray innocent blood, when this word sin is used in Matthew's Gospel, it suggests a very serious offence. So, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, he's dealing with something that really matters. This is not an excuse to go to my fellow believer with anything and everything that annoys me about them. This is not an excuse to air my grievances about my personal preferences, to go and see someone over whether they wear a suit or not on Sunday. This is what to do when someone has really wronged you. And if it isn't really serious, then it doesn't really matter, and if it doesn't really matter, then let it go. But if there is a genuine problem, if someone has really sinned against you, then the first step is plain. Verse 15, go and see them. Go and show him his fault. And notice it is go and see and it's not write a letter. A good friend of mine was a curate at a church that was being torn apart by disagreements. Relationships were, were seriously breaking down in the church. Desperately, the, the church is almost being split down the middle. As a final attempt to deal with the problem, the vicar at the time asked Michael Bourne to visit the church. At the time, Michael Bourne was Bishop of Chester. It wasn't in his diocese, it was in another diocese altogether. The church family was called together and my friend told me that one of the first things Michael Bourne said was this, the letters have got to stop. You see, the congregation had been writing letters to each other and copies of a, a good number of the letters had been sent to the bishop, but the bishop said the letters have got to stop and he explained why. He said, functional families don't write letters to each other when they've got problems with each other. No, they sit down and talk to each other. He explained the problem with letters. We brood over them. We read between the lines and we see things that haven't been said and that weren't intended. We keep getting them out and uh, out of the drawer and, and rereading them. And every time we do, it opens up old wounds and it makes us get more angry. And sometimes we even keep them so that we can use them against people. See, letters of complaint are, are extremely destructive. Be careful before you ever write one. And certainly don't write one to a brother or sister in Christ who sinned against you. No, verse 15, go and see them. See how the verse stops the letters and what's more, it stops the gossip. See, verse 15, if someone has sinned against you, go and see them, just the two of you. Not tell your friends the grievance. Not discuss it over coffee with your friends in the church lounge. And not tell your friends about it just as a matter of prayer. We can sanctify and spiritualise gossip, can't we? It's just for prayer. 
When we follow verse 15, it keeps the issue private, personal and confidential and it stops the gossip. I would love to see us as a church family dealing with gossip. It is one of the unchallenged sins of the middle-class British church. We are quick to condemn sexual immorality and doctrinal error and murder and theft and it's right that we do but we seem so ready to allow the destructive force of gossip to go unchallenged. But if you want to follow it up later, look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 29, and you'll see that gossip is considered a serious sin. Now listen to the Proverbs, indeed. If I've written down some of the Proverbs on the handout, I'm not going to read them all, but um, if you want to, come with me. If not, just listen in to uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, uh, page 651. Page 651, Proverbs 16, verse 28. See, here's the danger of gossip. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. Now, some of you will have seen that working out and the danger of it. Flip over to chapter 26 and verse 20, if you're with me. Chapter 26 and verse 20, page 662. Without wood, a fire goes out. We all know that. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. You see what the Proverbs is saying. Gossip is destructive. Gossip separates friends. Gossip is like fuel to a fire. And so, you see, if we gossip, it will hinder any attempt to restore relationships and bring people back into fellowship with one another and with the Lord, which is what this chapter is all about. And you see, if we would all commit to obeying Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it would end a huge amount of unhelpful gossip instantly. If when someone sinned against you, you would deal with it by going and seeing them, that would deal with a lot of gossip. Let me tell you how I've tried to sort this out. Uh, in my own mind, and how I've tried to uh, work this out. I've tried to live out Matthew 18, verse 15, by stopping people when they come to me and start telling me information about someone else. I'm going to use Philip Hacking as an example, not because he's done anything wrong, uh, and anybody's ever said this to me, but uh, Philip, you're in the congregation, and I'll use this as an example if I may. If someone comes up to me and says, I don't agree uh, with all that Philip Hacking has said about, before they go any further, I'll say, now please stop. Have you spoken to Philip Hacking about that? No? Then don't speak to me about it. Go and see him. See, will you join me in being committed to ending gossip among us? If someone starts to come up to you and tell you stuff about whatever is going on, whoever they don't like, or whatever is wrong between them, just say, now, have you told so-and-so about that? No? Well, then go and speak to them. And then if they won't listen, well, then the three of us could always talk about it. That's the next step, and we'll see that in a moment. See, verse 15, if you've got a problem with a brother, go and see him. And if it doesn't warrant going and seeing him, then it isn't a big issue and there's no need to talk to others about it, is there? Go and see your brother, just the two of you. And the intention of the meeting, end of verse 15, to win your brother, to win your brother, not to win the argument. It's not a point-scoring exercise, not an attempt to cause trouble, but a genuine desire to get the issue sorted. Because the brother or sister is so precious, I want to see them restored to the Lord and in fellowship with me. 
And it is important that we do deal with our differences like this. I've seen people eaten up by disagreements. Christians who are captive to past events. Maybe things that have happened years ago. They're still eaten up by it. Believers who've stopped being involved with God's people because of something that happened in the past. They were wronged by someone. They stopped going to church. They have no fellowship. They no longer put themselves under the word of God. They no longer have the joy of meeting with God's people and so on. Step one then, go and see your brother, just the two of you. And if he won't listen, step two, take elders along, verse 16. If he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it doesn't say that they have to be uh, elders, but I presume they ought to be. Take one or two mature believers with you, people who've been around the block a few times, Christians who know the scriptures, people who will arbitrate, someone who will help the two who are in disagreement to come to agreement, someone who will help to steer your way through the choppy waters. See, it is remarkable how the same incident uh, and the same conversation is retold so differently by two people when they are disagreeing with each other. We all do it, don't we? these independent witnesses will be able to say what really happened. And even the thought of taking one or two witnesses along may stop the dispute. If I'm just being silly, I'll think twice before involving another brother or sister, won't I? Well, that's step two, but if someone still refuses to listen, what does Jesus say? Well, thirdly, tell the church, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. I think of one situation that I heard about fairly recently of someone who'd fallen out with a leader in in, in a church, in another church. Um, The church had followed this procedure. Another Christian was involved as an arbitrator and the person still refused to be reconciled to the pastor. And so the independent Christian rang them up and said, there's an elders and deacons meeting tomorrow. If you will not deal with the issue, then Matthew 18 tells me that we have to tell them the details. By the time the meeting came around, the dispute was sorted. And that's the point of the procedure, to bring about reconciliation. Because you see, if you know that your dispute is going to go out to the whole church, you're going to sort it out, aren't you? We should never want to get to the point of having to exercise church discipline. But of course, if someone has sinned seriously and they won't repent, then treat them as unbelievers, verse 17. Evangelise them, pray for them to be converted, put them out of fellowship with the church. But once again, it is done out of a desire to see people reconciled to the Father because everyone is that important to him. Church discipline must never be exercised, uh, it must always be exercised for the good of the Christian. I've been really helped by reading this little book, uh, Stop Dating the Church by Joshua Harris, and he happens to have one little uh, section on church discipline. He says this, I gain a wonderful sense of protection in knowing that if I committed a scandalous sin and showed no repentance, my church wouldn't put up with it. They would plead with me to change. They would patiently confront me with God's word. And eventually, if I refused to change, they would lovingly kick me out. We looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, earlier on in one of our readings, verses 1 to 5. 
In that situation, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. It is shameful. And Paul tells the church there, hand him over to Satan. I presume what he means by that is put him outside the church so he won't have fellowship with other believers. But it's very important when you read 1 Corinthians 5, it is not to destroy him, but to restore him in his relationship with the Lord and with his brothers and sisters. And when that procedure is followed in church discipline, then verse 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Verses 18 to 20 are remarkably powerful. When we are faithful with the gospel and follow the procedure that Jesus has laid down here, we have the very authority of God himself to act. When the faithful church acts according to the word of God, it has all the authority of heaven itself. That's what verses 18, 19 and 20 are about. Verse 19 is not a proof text that God will give you whatever you want if you agree with another Christian. Verse 20 is not to encourage house group leaders that when only a couple of people have turned up to your group, well, it's okay that the Lord's with us anyway. These are wonderful promises that when we follow this grievance procedure, the Lord is with us, he is in it, he is behind us, and he will give us the authority to act, he will give us what we ask. See, the God who cares deeply for individual Christians says, you and I must care for them too. Enough for us to go out of our way when they stumble. Enough for us to seek them back into fellowship, even when they have wronged us and hurt us and sinned against us. And enough even for us to put them out of church fellowship if they refuse to repent, because we love them. We've seen how much God cares for other believers. Let me ask you, are other believers that important to you, that you would act like this? Let's pray together.